Um, well, good morning. My name is Kyle Cox. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. Uh, a little bit about me. I was a fellow, if you're familiar with our fellows program, uh, for three years, uh, two in our college ministry and then one in our outreach department. And then I came on full, full-time staff in our outreach department for one year. During this time, I met my wife, Chamilla. Uh, this is Chamilla Cox. It was Chamilla Panilla. Uh, and I just feel like I need to say that because it's a super bummer that it changed from Chamilla Cox or Chamilla Panilla to Chamilla Cox. And so I apologize to pretty much the world for making that happen uh, to her once amazing name. Uh, we got married two and a half years ago and we spent our last two years overseas in Greece. And we came back for a short season this last summer, uh, but now we're back for good. We arrived about a month ago into the land of Chick-fil-A and Queso. It's actually funny. I counted how many times we've had queso. We've had queso 16 times in 30 days. So, yeah, we were really missing it. Um, I'm really excited to be here. I love this church, and I'm very thankful for the investment that this church has made in my life and in my wife's life. And so I just want to say I love the opportunity to communicate the, to the scripture to you in this church and Creekside uh, just because I'm just so thankful also for the investment this church has made in me. So all that to say is I'm excited to be here. What I want to do now is I want to talk about your 70 years of life for the most part. Um, they say the average lifespan is about 78 years, but I put 70 years because I'm only focusing between age 8 and 78. So between age 8 and 78, I want to show you what the average amount of time we spend doing certain things, for example, like sleeping, we spend, on average, about 24 years of our life just sleeping. And for some people, that's going to be like 30. For others, that's going to be like, I don't know, like 16, and that's just sad to me. Um, for some of us, we're going to spend, for men, around 10.5 years of our life employed. Women, it's going to be about 8.5 years. Um, for eating, we're going to spend about four years of our life eating. And uh, that was the best four years of my life, so I'm cool with that. We're going to spend about 2.5 years in education. That's 17 years, including college. And these statistics, they'll fluctuate depending on if you went to college or if you were in grad school or if you got your PhD. Um, we have eight years on TV and internet. For our phone, we have about 4.5 years. Uh, driving, you're going to spend about three years. Reading, you're going to spend about three years. For people like my wife or like Matt Morton, that's going to be more like 10 years. For me, that's going to be like 0.5 years, and uh, I'm in seminary right now, so like 0.4 of those 0.5 years is all, all seminary. Um, let's see. Oh, this is a good one. Women, you're going to spend two years of your life just waiting, and men, you're going to spend about three years of your life just waiting, and I'm going to let you interpret that as you want, but I think there's some social experiments we can make that one and now husbands before you look at your wife and you're like yeah, you see that women you spend about six months in the bathroom men you spend three years in the bathroom um i think we should just look at that number for a second before we move on three years in the bathroom like what are we doing um <laughs> such a weird thing to say in church um <laughs> So all that to say, what I want to do this morning, I share this because I'm pointing out there's so much in our life that we have that we can't control. For example, like sleeping, you have to sleep, you have to eat. For the most part, for most people, you have to work. 
So our time is already filled up with stuff that we can't control. What I want to do is evaluate my priorities on the time that I can control. And even more specifically as a Christian, I want to ask myself, am I prioritizing my time for God's kingdom? Am I prioritizing my relationship with the Lord? Or do I spend my time, do I, do I gather so much time, do I prioritize so many other things that God, he, he gets pushed to the side or he gets what's ever left over? Uh, for example, Chamilla and I, when we go out to eat, we usually split our meals. And I was thinking it'd be kind of messed up if like when the meal came out, I was like, hey, hang on a second. And I just started eating until I was full and there was a little left over and I was like, hey here you go. Like I did some great thing for her. She gets kind of what's ever left over the meal. That'd be kind of messed up, right? I mean, that doesn't seem like a loving marriage. And I don't want us to do that same thing with God where we put so much in our life where God, he just gets the leftover. We say, hey, I, I want to fill myself, prioritize myself. I want all this for myself. But I mean, I can, I can give a Sunday. You know, I can, I can give one Sunday a week. I don't want us to give God what's ever left over. I don't want us to crowd out God with our schedule. And so this morning, what I want to look at is not how we can fit God into already busy schedule. What I want to look at is how we can make God the main focus of our life, the main priority of our life, and the decisions that we make flow through prioritizing Him. The work that we do, how we interact with people, flow through priority with Him. Priority with Him um, invoking outreach and community and evangelism and giving a priority where decisions about money flow through Him. Living a life that focuses on Him and not self. And so this morning, we're going to be in the book of Haggai. And Haggai, he's going to be near the end of the Old Testament. He's sandwiched between the two Zs, Zephaniah and Zechariah. So if you can't find him, he's only two chapters long, so chances are he's like one page in your Bible. Uh, Go to the end of the Old Testament, you'll see Malachi. And before Malachi, you'll see Zechariah. Before Zechariah, you will be at Haggai. And if you hit Zephaniah, you've gone too far. So Haggai, before we jump into Haggai, what we really need to understand is the context. Because like all scripture, but especially the prophets, if we don't understand the history or the context leading up to the prophet, we can find what they say sometimes confusing, or we can misunderstand what they say, and worst case scenario, we can create heresy out of what they say. And so we, so for the purpose of us not creating heresy and walking away as heretics, what I want to do is look at the context building up to Haggai. You see, Haggai is all about the rebuilding of the temple of God in Jerusalem. And this temple plays a significant part in Jewish history. And so where I want to go is 966 BC. God mandates, he charges Solomon with this task. It's to build this glorious temple. And in this temple, God says to Solomon, it will be God's dwelling place. It is where the presence of God will reside. It is as close to heaven on earth that you can get. It's the place where you want to experience God in a deep and intimate way. It's in the temple that you would find him in this time. Number two, this temple, it would be a witness to the nations. It would showcase God's glory to the nations that he is the true God, the one true God, Yahweh. And number three, it would be a hope to the Israelite people. And so for the Israelites, what this temple meant, as long as it stood strong, as long as this temple was standing, what this means is we have hope. 
This means that when the nations come against us, we will, uh, they will not conquer us because we have God on our side. We have the temple. And so after Solomon, what we see is the nation of Israel is split into two. The northern kingdom of Israel, they don't last long. They live in consistent sin. And so the Assyrians come in in 722 BC and they wipe them out. So now all you have is the southern kingdom of Judah. And Judah, they, they do okay for a little bit. They have a couple of good kings, and there's a couple times that they follow the Lord. But for the most part, Judah's living in sin. Sin in the form of disobedience to the Mosaic law, sin in the form of social injustice and idolatry. And so God, he sends prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Micah pleading with Judah, repent or judgment's coming. Repent or, meet, or impending judgment will be here. And so Judah, they live in rebellion. So what happens is another empire arises, the Babylonians. And it's in 620 that the Babylonians uh, defeat and conquer Assyria, and then they set their sight on Judah. And then we see in 605 BC and 597 BC, Babylon comes into Judah, they siege Judah, and they take back with them to Babylon thousands of Judean exiles. And so Judah, at this point in 597 BC, they're in Babylon, they're in exile, but they don't think their time will be long. They don't think this judgment will be long. They think their time here will be temporary. Why? Because the temple of God still stood strong in Jerusalem. So you can imagine the panic and the hopelessness when it was destroyed in 586 BC, when the Babylonians took away the last hope of defense for Judah. They destroyed the temple And Judah, in response, they accept their fate. They accept their time in captivity and are held captive for 70 years. So where does Haggai take place? Stay with me because Haggai's coming in. What happens is the Persians, they rise up. And in 539 BC, the Persians take down the Babylonian Empire. And then in 538 BC, King Cyrus, king of the Persians, he realizes he's just inherited all these Jewish exiles. So Cyrus, he makes this decree. He says well, maybe there's something to this Jewish God. Maybe this God is the true God. So he allows the Jewish people to return home. But not only that, he actually gives this Jewish remnant the money to finance the rebuilding of the temple so they can worship their God, Yahweh. And so the Jewish people return home. They start the building. They lay out the foundation. But something happens. The Samaritans start causing trouble. And the Judeans, they don't want to deal with it. So they stop the building of the temple, they turn to themselves, and they start building up their own houses, and they focus on self. And for 15 years they focus on self until God brings Haggai in in 520 BC. Haggai comes in, and what he does is he addresses their priority. So that's the context leading up to Haggai. The Jewish remnant right now, they have focused on self, and so Haggai is going to speak into him. So go ahead and start with me in verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying. Now what's kind of cool here is we can pinpoint to the actual date that Haggai gives this message. It's August 29th, 520 B.C., So if my math is correct, that means next week will be the 2,539th anniversary of this first message. So don't forget to celebrate that. (laughs) Verse verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says the time has not even come to build the house of the Lord. So here 
the Israelite remnant, the Jewish remnant, they share their excuse for neglecting the temple. They say it's just not time. It's been 15 years, but they say we just, we just haven't had the time. And so God here, he responds by saying, Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, this house lies desolate? You see what's happening here is God is being kind of sarcastic. He's saying, You say there's no time to build my temple, but there is time to spend building your houses in luxury. And what God is addressing here is this temple the place where they can know him, the place where they can be in relationship with him, be satisfied him by satisfied by him, the place where God can showcase his glory to the nations. He's saying, you've neglected to build that, but you've spent all the wealth that Cyrus gave to you from my temple on yourself. And so the Lord, he's not chastising them for their wealth. The Lord has used... Throughout scripture, many men and women who were wealthy, who had lots of money, and they used it for God's kingdom. So he's not, he's not calling them out for their wealth. He's not calling them out on their time. They had 15 years to build the temple. He's not calling them out on their laziness. Uh, in order to build them, their houses, they had to go to Lebanon. See, in this, uh, he says in their paneled houses, what that means is they built their house out of wood. And if you go to Israel today, you'll notice there's not a lot of trees. In fact, in Jerusalem today, it is illegal to build your house with wood. You have to build with white sandstone. So this Jewish remnant, they had to travel up the mountain to Lebanon to chop down trees and bring back wood. So he's not calling them out for their laziness. They have the money. They have the time. They have the energy. It's their priority. He's calling them out for their priority, not their wealth, their priority. And so let's see what happens when they focused on themselves. Let's see what the result was when they focused on self. Follow me starting in verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but you harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Move down to verse 11. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on labor of your hands. So he says twice here, consider your ways. And a vanilla translation of this is consider your priorities. What has priority on self produced? Well, here God, he lays out the evidence that the priorities on themselves has only produced dissatisfaction. They're thirsty, they're hungry, they're cold, and when they're cold, they can't be warm. They put money in pockets with holes in it. You see, what the Lord is showing is all the effort on yourself has come up empty. They're left unfulfilled. They're left unsatisfied. He's saying you've got these fancy houses, but you still are empty. And so God, he brings on this drought And I want to be careful because this isn't communicating that just because something tragic in your life is happening, that doesn't mean that you must be living in sin. 
And that's the danger that you could walk away with. Because the context here is what's happening, this famine, these are covenant curses laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and Leviticus chapter 26. So what's happening here is, does God discipline sin? Yes, and this is a discipline for their sin. But does that mean just because in your life you are sick or there is tragedy that God is punishing you for sin? No, not always. Because the reality is we live in a world longing for redemption and there is disease and there is sickness. So I wanted to clarify that. Now for our people group here, this is a result of their sin and their focus on self. Famine has taken place and God put it there. Why? Because he was trying to show his people how fruitless their efforts would be when they focus on self. It only leads in unfulfillment. In verse 11 and 12, it shows us that the worst thing that these Jewish remnant could do was focus on self. And the same is for us. Because the reality is God's economy is different than ours. That's why Jesus says in Mark 8, Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever wishes to lose his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it and find it. You see, we could fulfill our deepest desires. We could have the American dream. We could have the perfect house. We could have the perfect salary, the perfect marriage, the perfect life, the perfect family. But we will always end up dissatisfied. We will always end up unfulfilled because the only thing that satisfies and fulfills is our relationship with God and our relationship with our Savior, Jesus Christ. True peace and fulfillment comes with relationship with God. And so what was the response of this Jewish remnant? Look with me at verse 12. Look with me at verse 12. The remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Haggai, through the voice of the Lord, said, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, and the spirit of Joshua, and the spirit of all the remnant people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Now, if you've read through the prophets, you know the prophets were very familiar with people uh, not responding well to their message. A lot of times they were responded by um, persecution or ignorement or apathy. Um, I don't think ignorement's a word, but you get it. Uh, so I think these pro- Haggai here, I think he knew that. But what happened is, I think he was probably waiting for the stones to be cast. And then what happened is they responded with obedience. What compelled to these people to respond with obedience? It's found in verse 12. It was the voice of the Lord their God. It was the voice of the creator of heaven and earth who spoke to them and compelled them to obedience. It was his voice that they could respond with obedience to rebuild the temple and be in right relationship with him. It was the voice of the Lord their God who only he satisfies, who only he fulfills. They stood in awe of the Lord and they, as it says, they showed reverence to him. And so I just got to ask myself and ask you in the room who are followers of Jesus, do you read scripture ready to hear the voice of the Lord your God? Do you pray ready to hear his voice? Do you live in community and hear wisdom from other believers ready to hear his voice? And chances are it's not going to be some audible, loud voice. Some of it is. That's either really cool or super scary. Um, But it's going to be through scripture and community and prayer. 
that is a good place to start to hear the voice of the Lord? Or do we crowd all that time out and do we not have time to pour into community? Do we not have time for prayer? Do we prioritize other things where our only time is this time right here? Listen to the voice of the Lord and a good place to start is through community and prayer and scripture. Is priority with God affecting the way I live my life? Is prioritizing God affecting what I say at work? What I, how I treat my friends, how I treat my, fam- my, my friendships, my family, students, how you interact with people in class? Does priority in God's kingdom change the way uh, we live our life? My hope for you this this week, as, as you process through Haggai, is that you would think through this next year, this next fiscal year, this next school year, and think, how can I prioritize my relationship with God and God's kingdom? And I'll say, if you don't know where to start, a good place is prayer, community, and scripture. So Haggai, he moves on to chapter 2. In chapter 2, he gives three messages, and we're going to spend like a fraction of the time on these three messages. But what I love about chapter 2 is that it really builds upon chapter 1. In other words, what it does is chapter 1 answers, how do we prioritize the Lord? So if you prioritize God and prioritize the kingdom, what chapter 2 is answers these questions. It says, this is what you should expect So it'll give us three expectations, and then it'll give us three responses to those expectations. So when we prioritize the Lord and prioritize God's kingdom, what should we expect? Well, he says, expect discouragement. And when you're discouraged, respond with remembering. So chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Who is left among you who saw the temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage and work, for I am with you. As for the promise which I made to you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. Once more in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of the nations, and I will fill this house with glory. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So what's happening here is this Jewish remnant, while they're building the temple, they listen to Haggai, and this is about three weeks later. They're excited, they're serving the Lord, but something happens. They become discouraged. And this is particularly interesting because this is during the week of the Feast of Tabernacle. And during, throughout Israel's history, they had several feasts that would recognize God's faithfulness. And this feast particularly, this recognized God's faithfulness when he freed the people out of Egypt and brought them to the Promised Land. Also, this was during a feast of grapes. And so they were supposed to gather a bunch of grapes and they would make wine and they would eat a a lot of food. And so the picture here should be they're building the temple. And after they build the temple at night, they're having this huge feast, this huge party to remember God's faithfulness. But something has robbed them of their joy. See, what's happened is there's this older generation, this older generation of men and women who remember Solomon's temple before it was destroyed. And as they're working, they're thinking, man, this temple, this one that we're building now, it's nothing like Solomon's. And they become discouraged. In fact, Ezra chapter 13 will tell us that the men and women began weeping because it was nothing like the glory of Solomon's temple. The new is nothing like the old. The old was better. And I got to say, I can really relate to them because I'm a Star Wars fan. 
And uh, I love the original trilogy. And I know I'm a poser and I wasn't alive when they came out. But I still, when I grew up, I grew up uh, collecting the action figures, watching them with my family. I even like the prequel trilogy. I know the acting's great. Hayden Christensen is Anakin. I get it. But I still really love the prequels. And so when the new ones came out, you know, the Disney ones that are out right now, I was just like, they just don't compare. They just don't compare to the old ones. So if I could just give some comfort to these guys in uh, our, our book of Haggai, I'd say I get it. I'm a Star Wars fan. Um, and what you've seen happen is their discouragement has turned into bitterness, and their bitterness has seeped down to the younger generation. And I, I just feel like I could relate to this when I was in Greece. When we left for Greece, man, we were excited to serve the Lord. We were going to start movements. We were going to see people come to know Jesus, and it was going to be this crazy movement in Greece. But when we got there, we saw that that movement just wasn't happening. We saw it was very slow moving. We didn't see people come to Jesus right away. And we, what happened to me personally was I got discouraged. And at one point, that discouragement turned into bitterness. And so what did I do when that happened? What did the people do when that discouragement turned into bitterness? Well, Haggai gives us the answer. Haggai, he says in verse 4, take courage and work. Here it is. For I am with you. So the first thing we do when we are discouraged living a life, prioritizing kingdom work, and we don't see fruit, we don't see the outcome, we don't see fruits of our labor, because that was the problem. They weren't seeing the fruit of the temple. What happens when that happens is we remember that God is with us and he's enough and he's enough. Number two, Haggai in verse five, he uses the Exodus account to remind them of God's faithfulness. So what do we do when we're discouraged? We remember what he's already done. We remember moments in our life when we see God has been faithful. And number three, what do we do? We we, work, we remind ourselves that our work is of eternal significance, even when we don't see the outcome, even when we don't see the fruit. Look in verse 9 with me. He says, The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, thus says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace. What's he saying? He's saying the temple that you're building now, the one that you're discouraged about, this temple, I'm going to make the glory of Solomon's temple seem insignificant. The work you're doing now that you think is insignificant has eternal significance. Because what this Jewish remnant didn't know is that 500 years later, uh, King Herod was going to deck this temple out in gold and silver. And then a young boy, Jesus, was going to sit in this temple and teach to the people who were there listening. And it was going to be the same temple that Jesus would be brought on trial. It would be the same temple that he would be uh, accused and brought to the penalty of death. It would be this temple that in 70 AD, the Romans would destroy it beyond repair, but the foundation of what Zerubbabel and this Jewish remnant built would stand strong. It's the same temple that today you could go to Jerusalem and see this foundation that this people group that we're reading about right now worked on. What's more, it's the same temple that in the millennial kingdom, what we believe to be the millennial kingdom, God will rebuild and all the nations around the world will come to this temple, the foundation of what they built, and they will worship Jesus for all eternity. That is this temple that they're working on. It has eternal significance. And I love what Daniel Hayes, who wrote the book, The Message of the Prophet, says. He writes, 
in addition to ultimate fulfillment of this greater glory mentioned in verse 9, will be in this millennial temple. By building this post-exilic temple, the people would help advance God's program of manifesting himself in a central place of worship, the yet future millennial temple. So their work was more than merely constructing a building. This is key. It was a spiritual work which would ultimately culminate in God's millennial program. The same millennial program we see in Ezekiel and Zechariah and Romans and Hebrews and Revelation. But they just thought they were putting rubble together to build something that would just be nothing. But no, they were building something that would have eternal significance. So when you serve the Lord, when you uh, prioritize his kingdom and you get discouraged, you remember he is with you and he's enough. You remember the promises of his past faithfulness and you remember that even though what you're doing seems insignificant has eternal significance discouragement number two he says expect legal i'm sorry expectation number two he says expect legalism but respond with repentance so read with me starting in verse 11 thus says the lord of hosts ask now the priest for a ruling if a man carries holy meat in his fold and the fold of his garment And touches bread with this fold or cooked food, will it become holy? And the priest answered, No. Then Haggai said, If one is unclean from a corpse, touches any of these things, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, It will will become unclean. Then Haggai said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Skip down to 19 with me. Is the seed still in the barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree? It is not born fruit, yet from this day on I will bless you. So what's happening here is the people, this is about three months later now, we're about, we're almost to Christmas. Um, I guess Christmas wasn't a thing there. We're just in winter. Uh, What they're doing now, (laughs) what they're doing now is they're building this holy temple, and they're thinking that this good work that they're doing is meriting God's grace and meriting God's blessing. They believe because they're doing good works that they should get blessed. And so Haggai comes here. He says, he questions them. He says, do you believe since you're touching a holy temple that you're made holy? And they're saying, yeah. And so Haggai, he gathers the priests together and he says, does it work this way? See, in the Mosaic law, if you touch something unclean, you become unclean. So he's saying to the priest, does that mean if you touch something holy, you become holy? So like you in the room, if you're sick, if you have a flu or have a cold, you have something, then first of all, why are you here? Uh, And second of all, if you are here, I wouldn't suggest you curl up and cuddle up to the person next to you who's healthy. Like, I don't don't think that's going to make you healthy, right? You don't get health just by touching something that's healthy. In fact, he says it's quite the opposite in verse 13. He says, you won't become holy just because you touch something holy. In fact, you're going to be made unclean if you touch something unclean. Because in Jewish history, if you touch the dead body, you would have to wait out in the camp, and then you'd have to bathe, and you'd have to make a sacrifice. The priest would have to come and perform a ritual. It's this big thing. So he says, if anything, you are made unclean. And so he's saying, guys, you're missing the point. God, he's not after your hands. He's after your heart. He wants a heart who serves him uh, with humility, not a heart who's just aching to be blessed. He wants your heart. And so for us today, what does it mean for us to be clean? How are we made holy? Well, it's through Jesus. Jesus, who lived a perfect life. 
Jesus, who died on the cross and took the full weight of our sin and our filth and our dirt, he took it all. He took the place of our death, the death that we deserved. And he died on the cross and then rose again three days later, effectively conquering sin once and for all, that if you would just place your faith in Jesus, you would be made clean. Anything in your past and anything in your future just wiped away. And when God looks at you, he sees Jesus perfect and holy and unblemished. You see, that's how we are made right. It's through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, grace is unmerited. It's not earned. And so Haggai here, he warns us against legalism. And then he says, how do you, how do you handle legalism? How do you respond to it? Through repentance. Acknowledging that it is through grace, for us today, grace made possible through Jesus, not our own means that we can be made clean. Our third expectation is this. He says, expect rejection, but respond with representation. So what's interesting about this verse is that this portion, uh, Haggai, he's only talking to Zerubbabel, the high priest. I'm sorry, Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. He's not talking to the remnant. He's talking to Zerubbabel. So follow me, starting in verse 21. Speak to Zerubbabel and say, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of the kingdom and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nation. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and their horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. On that day, Zerubbabel, I will take you, my servant, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord. You see, Zerubbabel, he was part of a greater promise given 500 years before this time. It was a promise that God made to David that, David, one day through your line, there will be a messianic king, and this king will lay waste to all other authorities. He will establish his throne here on the earth, and all nations will worship him forever. That is our king. And so he says this to David in what we call the Davidic Covenant. And Zerubbabel, he plays a part in this because in Matthew chapter 1, we find out that Zerubbabel is a descendant of this messianic king, Jesus. And God tells Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, there's a day when there will be a war to end all wars. And on that day, there will be those who have rejected me and they will reject you also. But Zerubbabel, I've made you a signet ring. And a signet ring is a ring that kings would use to dip in wax and they would seal an envelope with it and it was a sign of their authority, a sign and symbol of their power. And so he's saying, Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, you will be a sign of my authority. You will be a representation of me. But even more importantly, you will be a representation of that which will come, King Jesus. And for us, we respond to rejection by representing Jesus now. We are kingdom representatives, representatives, representatives of the one who can save all mankind. And so when we prioritize kingdom work, that is what we're doing is we are representing Jesus. And so as we leave here today and conclude, I just want us to evaluate, am I prioritizing my relationship with God and am I prioritizing kingdom work? Because when we've been saved by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we get to experience relationship with God in a personal and intimate way. And we get to showcase the salvation and glory of Jesus Christ to a world that is longing for redemption. And so as you move forward, uh, 
thinking through priority, I would just say remember his promises, repent of sin, and reflect Jesus because this world desperately needs Jesus and we have the solution. We have the solution for this need for redemption. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you. God, we pray um, as we live through our life, we don't want to waste it. We don't want to waste the time we have here. And so, Lord, we prioritize you first. And in prioritizing you, we can make decisions, keeping you as the focal point, even in our entertainment, in our hobbies, in our enjoyment of life, God, that you still are our focus. Would it affect how we live? Would it affect how we remember and repent and reflect? I pray you'd change us. I pray that we would put you as our priority and it would start first with a relationship with you. For those who don't know you, I pray that they would know that they are loved by you and that you so want to have a relationship with them. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray, God. Amen. You guys have a great week. We'll see you back here next week. Matt will be back, which is exciting. Uh, so yeah, have a great week.